Good morning, and thank you for joining us for our latest TRADOC Leader Professional Development Discussion. I'm Sarah Houck, a Public Affairs Specialist in the TRADOC Communication Directorate, and I will be your moderator for today's event. Joining me in the studio today is Major General Lonnie Hibbard, Commanding General of the United States Army Center for Initial Military Training. Thanks for joining us again for today's discussion on holistic health and fitness, a topic you're actually one of the main drivers behind, sir. It's good to be back, Sarah, and I'm excited for today's discussion on holistic health and fitness. H2F became the Army's fitness program of record on October 1st of 20. It is a comprehensive system that encompasses all aspects of human performance from with physical and non-physical elements, sleep, nutritional, spiritual, and mental, to ensure unit and individual soldier readiness. It is a life cycle system that improves and sustains soldier readiness from pre-accession training through an Army career and then as a soldier for life. It represents a cultural shift in the way commanders train, develop, and care for our most important weapon system, our soldiers. H2F is designed to optimize soldier personal readiness, reduce injury rates, improve rehabilitation after injury, and increase the overall effectiveness of the total Army. H2F is an interdisciplinary approach to caring and training our soldiers. It focuses on all aspects of the individual along with the physical training all soldiers are all too familiar with. In our discussion today, we are going to focus primarily on the importance of mental readiness and how it plays into building a ready and lethal warfighter. We've invited experts on this particular topic as well as human performance as a whole to join us today. Ms. Karen Costello and Mr. Andy Reese are with us virtually. Ms. Costello has more than 30 years of performance enhancement coaching, working with a wide range of athletes and coaches at the Olympic and NCAA Division I levels. She also has more than seven years of experience working with the Army and Naval Warfare on the aspect of human performance and resiliency. Currently, she is an associate at Booz Allen Hamilton, focusing on the firm's human performance capability. Also with us today is retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Andy Reese. He is one of the Army's first master resilience trainers and considered an expert in the mental fitness and the applied psychology of elite performance and resilience. He is currently the mental skills coach for the Cincinnati Reds and has worked with other professional sports programs such as the New York Jets, Las Vegas Raiders, and Minnesota Vikings. Both have been leaders in the Army's effort to establish a program that utilizes interdisciplinary teams to coach and support soldiers on physical, mental, and spiritual levels to help yield more holy capable and ready soldiers. Welcome to both of you. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you, sir. Uh, General Hibbert and, and all of the CIMT leadership and trade out leadership. Just want to, on behalf of myself, the Cincinnati Reds and Major League Baseball, thanks for having us. Again, thanks for joining us. And just as a reminder, before we get started, we want you to be part of the discussion today. So leave your questions in the comments section of the Facebook live feed or the watch page feed, and we'll try to get them answered by Andy, Karen, or General Hipper during the program. If we can't, keep an eye on our social media pages and we'll get answers to your questions and have them posted in the near future. And with that, General Hipper, why don't you get us started for today? Thank you, Sarah. You know, H2F is an immersive health and fitness system of governance, including personnel, equipment, facilities, programming, and education that helps develop ready soldiers who are physically fit and mentally tough to engage with and overmatch the enemy in multi-domain operations. You know, why do we need H2F? 
Well, 70 percent of the people between the ages of 17 and 24 are unqualified for military service, approximately, approximately 31 percent due to obesity, 17 percent of the active component soldiers, and 25 percent of the Reserve and National Guard soldiers are obese by body mass index. They are statistically more likely to experience injury and of being medically non-deployable. Muscular skeletal injuries affect 55% of soldiers annually, equates to about 10 million limited duty days, and approximately $577 million spent annually on patient care. 12% of active component soldiers, or 58,000, are non-deployable, which is equivalent to a loss of 13 brigade combat teams. And of this number, 66%, or 37,000 soldiers, or nine brigade combat teams, are non-deployable for medical reasons. A 1% reduction of non-availability rates will save more than $40 million. To truly develop soldier readiness, both mental and physical readiness, must be maximized. Leaders play a critical role in creating and sustaining a climate and culture that encourages both individual and team mental readiness. Unlike physical, sleep, and nutritional readiness, mental readiness is difficult to standardize and measure. Mental readiness is a foundational uh, consideration in the H2F system. It is required to achieve the capabilities the Army must possess to win in multi-domain operations, and key to its success will be the routine access to H2F performance teams, consisting of a physical therapist, occupational therapist, registered dietitian, athletic trainer, strength and conditioning coach, and cognitive performance specialists. This team, working in an interdisciplinary manner, will be available to our soldiers as we continue to field H2F to the Army. And Karen, Andy, what are your thoughts on our way ahead? I'm really excited about the program and the interdisciplinary uh, approach that you're taking. It's something that's been near and dear to my heart for several years, and I know Andy and I have had multiple conversations about exactly this type of program and how important it is to the Army. No, I, I'm super excited, sir, and uh, to the audience about it as well. You know, I think this is an opportunity for us to, to really do an asthma check on how we develop tactical athletes individually and organizationally, right? You know, we, we know that winning matters, performance is at a premium, and, you know, the mental aspect of, you know, readiness and performance is, is really important. Now more than ever, we understand not only how to do that, you know, and how to operationalize that to enhance the human weapon system, and I think it's also an opportunity to take a, and I know why I say it's an asthma check, because in order to understand where we're going, we got to know where we're at now, and we also got to look at what we've done. And we've done a lot of good, good work, and there's a lot of great folks who are out there who really established a strong foundation. When I came in the Army, especially when you came in the Army, General Hubbard, you know, we weren't talking about this, right? You know, behavioral health was in the, in the shadows. The fact that we could, didn't even call it mental health shows you there's an indicator that, you know, there was a lot of stigma associated with that. We've made a lot of progress. We still have a lot of work to do, and this is an opportunity for us to get it right. Absolutely. Thank you, Karen and Andy, for that. And kind of building off of that, Andy, I wanted to ask um, this mental readiness. When did you really start seeing it in the Army? Um, I know that you were a, a lieutenant colonel. So when can you give us kind of a history or a background on mental readiness within the Army? I would love to, yeah, and just as a student of this and having experienced it personally and professionally, I think it's important for us to understand that this is not new, folks, okay? This has been around for a bit. In fact, it goes back to the Greeks, okay? So if you want to look at the first person in the, the godfather of mental toughness, 
we're looking at the Stoics, right? We're looking at Marcus Aurelius. We're looking at 121 AD, a warrior scholar, the guy, you know, one of the people who was bringing mental toughness to warriors into Roman centurions, uh, you know, a long time ago. Now, in the modern times, I think it's also a little-known project called the Trojan Warrior Project in the 1980s came into being at Fort Devens, Massachusetts. The first integrated human performance pilot program called the Trojan Warrior Project was brought into being. Learned a lot of lessons. There's a great book called In Search of the Warrior Spirit by Richard Strozzi Heckler, where we learned a lot of lessons and arguably that planted the seed for what we're doing today and also for our combatives, modern army combatives program as well, too, that later came back into being. The, the third data point that I want to hit on the, on the timeline in modern times is 1993, and that's when West Point Center for Enhanced Performance came online into being. It really started in 1989 by Colonel Louis Choka, um, who has a, had his PhD in organizational and educational psychology for the University of Washington, hired a new captain at the time, uh, retired recently retired General Robert Brooke Brown, uh, who became the first uh, instructor there at the Center for Enhanced Performance, and that's the first time we really see the best uh, practices, the evidence-based practices of sport and performance psychology being brought into the military and then being trained to cadets, uh, both academically, uh, athletically, and militarily in terms of de deliberately developing the intangible attributes of leadership. And that's how it was designed. And it was designed to integrate into existing physical, technical, and tactical training at the academy because like everyone else, time and energy is at a premium. So how do you weave that into there as well too? And then the last data point that I'm going to hit on is in 2009, when the first Tiger team was formed by then General Casey, Chief of Staff of the Army, in response to the suicide epidemic that we were experiencing. More soldiers killed themselves at home station than in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. Congress was poking them in the chest saying, what are we going to do about this? So we combined the existing programs, the Army Center for Enhanced Performance at that time, um, which I was a part of as the operations officer. We had six sites at the time. We now have 30 sites across the Army with DOD contracted sport performance psychology practitioners helping deliver performance psychology and mental skills training into uh, our forces across the board at the institutional and operational sides of the Army. So what Comprehensive Soldier Fitness did was they combined three major programs, the Army Center for Enhanced Performance, which was the extension of the CEP at West Point to be able to export those services. We have the Walter Reed Army Institute uh, uh, Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, a project called Battlemind at the time, which was being taught resilient skills by chaplains for redeploying soldiers. And the third one was the University of Pennsylvania's Resilience Project, led by uh, Dr. Martin Seligman and Dr. Karen Rivich, which was then teaching resilient skills to fifth and sixth grade teachers across the globe. We combined those to develop the comprehensive soldier fitness uh, training, specifically the mental and emotional skills training that you see out there in the force today. Perfect, Andy, I appreciate that answer. And it seems like the mental readiness aspect has always been part of our training and it's been part of our military. We just haven't quite really adopted it and added it as a, dare I say, check in the box for training. Um, but kind of building on that, uh, Karen, how do we actually operationalize mental readiness in the, in the right way for the Army? How do we make sure that these individuals are mentally ready and operationalize their mental readiness? So thank you for asking that, Sarah. I'm gonna go back about seven years ago, six or seven years ago to a pivotal point in my career and certainly in my thinking going forward. Uh, I had just completed 
an MRT class and we had an E7 in there who I had gotten to know just chatting. And after the class was over, about a week later, I got a phone call from him. He was a, a sergeant, a platoon sergeant, Nick Cottrell, and he called me and he said, I have this soldier and I'm really having trouble with her and she's about to get chaptered out because she won't pass her PT test. And he said, she's got no motivation. She just doesn't seem to care about anything. I don't know what to do with her. Can I send her to your office? And I said, absolutely. So the next day in she walks and boy, did she have an attitude. I said, so what's going on? Let's talk a little bit. She said, I don't want to be here. I don't care if I flunk. I want to get out. Just really not in a good place. So I said, well, how about I meet you tomorrow morning at 5.30 out of the track? Well, I'll go just because I have to, but I don't want to be there, she tells me. So out I go at 5.30, I meet her, whole different demeanor, one-on-one. -on -one. So she's not quite as defensive. She breaks down a little bit, starts talking to me about some different things. She has some weight issues. She's a smoker, all sorts of things going on there. So at that point, you know, I made a commitment to her. I said, I will be out here every day at 5.30 for six weeks to work with you till you take your PT test. And I'm also gonna get some other people involved. So I went right next door to the wellness center who, you know, I hadn't really interacted with before, but they were right next door to us. And I got someone to work with her on smoking cessation, somebody else on weight loss, and another to talk to her about nutrition. So six weeks later, after working every day and teaching her the mental skills while she was working out, we had the PT test, she passed and stayed in the army. And she said to me, you know what, thank you. You saved my career. And I said, I did not save your career, it was a team. And that's when I realized that we have all these resources out there. And if we work together as a team, we can do so much more. So the takeaway was one, you know, she and I sat down and established what her values were. And they were her family. She wanted to make them proud. And perseverance, she didn't want to quit. And then, we just talked about her goals moving forward and what she wanted. And what I realized from that is a couple things. One, we needed to take the jargon down because I said to her, you know, I've seen you in my classes. And she said, yeah, I didn't know what you were talking about. So we have to look at our audience and speak to them and know, okay, who am I talking to and how am I gonna explain this in a way they're going to understand it? And then the most important thing I think is building that connection and working as a team. So basically H2F encompasses all of this. Super excited about it. Thank you. Hey Karen, thank you very much. And you highlighted a, a great point in your comments. And as we operationalize this, it's really, it's not only the soldiers, but it's the commanders taking this serious and ensuring that we build the time into the training program, into our daily activities, and more importantly, ensuring that the, the professionals that we're bringing into H2F have access to our soldiers. Because as you mentioned, it may not be a one size fits all for every soldier. And it's gonna take leader as well as the professional's involvement to figure out what that is for our soldiers so that we can overcome these, some of these hurdles and ensure that every soldier can meet its optimal or their optimal performance and be a viable member of our team. So thank you. Thank you. If I could just add to that too, sir, you know, I know that, you know, we, we're, all, we're all dealing with challenges of a scale. You know, we look at the size of the Army, you know, and I know a lot of people think that we don't deal with, with scale challenges in, in professional sports, but we do. There's two of us and, you know, 300 people 
you know, about the size of a, a little bit bigger than a rifle company, right? Less than the size of a battalion company, but we still have scale challenges because they're spread out all over the country and then obviously internationally, right? So how do you do that? And for us in the pro sports world, it's really op it's really leveraging the um, the coaches, or in this case, the leaders in the military. And I think one of the challenges that we faced in the last 12 years uh, in terms of lessons learned is that a lot of leaders were given this training and education, specifically resilience training, they were exposed to it at some point in time, whether mandatory or optional to them, and they were bringing it into themselves. And I think the inside out approach is really, really important. But a lot of leaders as I was, especially in my last 10 years in the army, didn't really understand how to then weave mental skills training into their training plans, right? And how to do that, right? So for example, you go to an executive resilience training program, you spend very little time talking about how to walk a leader through a company commander and a first sergeant on how to build mental skills training into their training plan when it doesn't necessarily have to be a standalone and take up precious white space. And it's not designed that way. It's designed to be integrated into what we already do. And it takes a little bit of creativity. It takes a little bit of extra time. But if we can train leaders on how to plan, prepare, execute, and assess mental skills training, we're gonna really start to move the needle. Yeah, Andy, I agree with you completely on that. And I think, as, as I mentioned in my opening comments, is the, the benefit of H2F is it's an interdisciplinary relationship between all of the professionals, um, our cognitive enhancement specialists, occupational therapists, but also how do they work as a team? Because it's usually not just one problem, both with what you mentioned uh, and what Karen mentioned. It's how do we bring in both the spiritual, the physical, the mental, and all aspects. And even in this case, when she talked about smoking uh, cessation, it, it's, it's a complex problem. And it's not a cookie cutter solution now for our soldiers as we, as we bring our soldiers to the forefront of people first in our army. Yes, sir. Um, kind of building on those being able to blend the mental readiness training into a regular, already fairly rigorous training, physical training schedule um, for the Army side of things. How, how do you see that moving forward and building those, those mental training sessions into what we're already doing? You said it, it seems like it's kind of already blended into everyday things, but what do you see that as the future for the Army? Do you want to take that first, Karen, and then I'll, I'll reinforce it? Sure. I was going to say, you know, meet them where they're at. And back to being a coach, I never coached people in a classroom. I always went out on the track. So I think what I found from that experience with that soldier was, one, experiential learning works. So if you're out there teaching them something and they have the immediate opportunity to practice it, and then you can reinforce it daily, it sticks. That would be the first thing. I think we can integrate ourselves into their schedule, not the other way around. Yeah, I agree with that. I think one of the challenges of uh, the mental and emotional and even interpersonal attributes are, especially when you look at our doctrine as they're intangible, right? It, you, it's hard to wrap your hands around, it's hard to measure it. You know, so you really have to make them experiential. You, you have to apply them to something that you're already doing and, and moving them from the cognitive and emotional side to the behavioral side, right? Because that. The behavioral side of things is where the synthesis of all these components in human dimension happen, right? So what does that look like? And and I, I want to use a, a, an example that Karen and I were part of at Fort Benning, Georgia. One of the pilot programs for H2F was the tactical athlete, uh, um, tactical athlete performance center and program. And one of the first populations that I was a part of was the Maneuver Captain's Career Course, right? And they're there about five months. And what we did is that we brought them in and then we had them do 
uh, you know, at a center, which is one of the facilities, one of the resources we're talking about, that was more designed towards functional fitness. So the old Wells Gym there, if you guys remember where that is there at Fort Benning, Georgia. And so what they did is they redesigned that, made it more designed for functional fitness with indoor and outdoor capabilities. And we're talking about 150 captains. And what they did was over a 90-minute PT session that they would normally built into their schedule. Again, we're not infringing upon the, the POI. We know how important that is. So how do we incorporate the cognitive and emotional side of this too? Well, one of the circuits that we did on a daily basis, one of the groups that kept, so they split into teams. Karen obviously came out from Hawaii um, and was a part of this as well too, helping out with the running piece of this too. And we had some R2 center cognitive enhancement specialists who were part of running a tactical circuit that, that incorporated cognitive things in terms of being able to have self-awareness, self-regulation, uh, decision-making where they're fully kitted up and they were doing a physical circuit and we were weaving in things that were cognitively challenging, raising the raising the stress level, getting your physiology up and still having to perform at an optimal level during physical training. That was a great example. We got some tremendous feedback from it, but that is just one of the many examples of the great work, the applied and integrated work that's already being done by folks who are out there. And I think some of the challenges is, is, is that how do we propagate, how do we share these best practices across the force. So, you know, if I'm at, you know, if I'm at JBLM or if I'm, uh, you know, at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a battalion commander who's got this incredible program, right? You know, the battalion commander in another brigade may not have any idea about how to operationalize this in the same way you do. So how do we get those best practices out there? And one of the things I'm excited about is that H2F will help share those best practices and export them across the force. And that's really important. Yeah, Andy, and that's that's my, you know, that's what my command does as we go forward, and that's my job here to do that. And so, we're also trying to bring it into as we as we continue to field H2F, bringing it into PME, uh, and our professional military education for both our officers and our non-commissioned officers, so that they can start thinking about these domains differently, and how not only to go get support and bring that into their training plan, but how that support will enable their training plan as well. Because again, it's about that education. Uh, so they understand what to look for, how to integrate it, how to how to think about it, and then as we provide those uh, those experts to it, um, it all will come together uh, across the the formations as well as sharing those lessons learned. No, you're exactly right, sir. And I think it looks different. I mean, it's a scaffold approach across the soldier life cycle, right? You know, so we have a good framework. You know, so again, it's no one size fits all, but the framework can be consistent across the board over a soldier life cycle, right? So the mental skills foundations, the mental skills and te techniques, they can get more advanced over, over time. And you know, it can be tailored to what the performance, the operational environment, the situation, the complexity of whatever the situation is at home station, deployed, whatever you're doing. But the idea is that I'm building a strong foundation from the point of entry within initial entry training, and then I get, a do I get dosing within my PME to where I get more education. Then meanwhile, in between those PME gates, I'm getting training that reinforces this the scaffold, we can we can theoretically build that scaffold. And to give you an example of way that you could do that, again, using the career course example, is that you know the R2 training center at Fort Benny had not really worked with the maneuver captain's career course, you know, which I consider the gold standard for the career courses across the board, and it's looked as such by our peers. But one of the things you're looking at, how to how do I weave that into what they're already doing? Well, offboard briefs for captains in the first phase of their training is a significant emotional event. You know, uh, as, as anyone who's been through that understands that too. And there's a, there's, a, there's a significant washout rate. And the reasons why that we identified weren't necessarily because of competence or because of knowledge. 
it was because of things like confidence and composure and concentration, right? And then not being able to have self-awareness in real time and then regulate and then influence the process, right? So what we did is we designed an intervention. We brought in, you know, cognitive enhancement specialists who were available before, during, and after these op-board briefs to, to help them prepare and integrate mental skills training into a significant portion of the op-order brief, which was graded on those intangible attributes like poise, confidence, and composure. So that's a great example of how we can integrate the skills training into PME without taking away from any precious time or resources uh, available. And Andy, to caveat off that, you make a great point. And I think that when we're teaching those initial skills during PT, and we tell them, you can transfer these skills to other areas. So when you're getting your activation just right for an event you're about to do in PT, well, that's the same thing you can do before you go give a brief with the deliberate breathing to bring your activation level down and self-awareness, knowing where you need to be. So that's a great point. And I've always said, and you and I have talked about this, even starting with the very basics in basic training, teaching them mental cues for proper running form, you give them an introduction to what we do and then build upon that, as you said. And the great part about mental training is that, you know, you're not beholden to a gym, you're not beholden to PT hours, you're not beholden to go to rifle range. You can train your brain uh, 24-7, 365 to get quality reps, and that's the beauty of it. Absolutely, Karen and Andy, we really appreciate all this insight. Now, my question for you guys is, these are some really great pilot programs that are finding some success, um, but mental readiness is kind of an interesting thing that's not really tangible to collect. So how do we know that these programs are going to be sustainable and helpful and really beneficial to our soldiers moving forward? Um, how, how do you measure um, if somebody's confident or how do you measure if these programs really are creating poise and the ability to make solid decisions in, in the face of stress. So that has been a challenge and it's been a big challenge because people like to see metrics. And I think where we've come with that, and I was recently working the last few years on a pilot project, Squad Overmatch, where we actually were doing analyticals with biofeedback wearables. What we were able to do with that was, if you look at the habit loop, which is cue, routine, and reward. The routine part of that is what we're measuring. So we were actually able to measure their performance, what they were doing out there, and we had different groups. We had a control group, we had the test group, and then another test group with uh, limited exposure to cognitive skills training. So we could tell when they went out there and they were highly activated, you could see the soldiers who had the cognitive training and who knew how to do the deliberate breathing and bring their activation level down. It was reflected on the biofeedback wearables and transmitted back to us so we could see exactly what was happening. So that's one way and technology is so amazing right now moving forward with what they're doing with these biofeedback wearables. So not only are we getting data, but it's a big buy-in for the soldier. If the soldier can actually see, and back to the girl I worked with out on the track using a handheld HRV device, she could see when she got her breathing down and when she was recovering and ready to go. And it's the millennial mindset. They love technology. So I think that's the way forward. We need to invest in biofeedback wearables and really have a strategy on how we're using them. Don't just buy them just because it's a shiny new toy. 
Yeah, and I would say too, just from the macro perspective as well, you know, so again, we're talking about scale and scope and how do you scale a 475,000 active duty army, 1.1 million, you know, in the reserve component, right? It's, it's, it's a daunting task, you know, something we've taken a look like. And, and again, you know, as someone who's building a mental skills program in a major league baseball team, much, much smaller, you know, uh, but still just as daunting, right? And so I think one of the things we have to really understand is, you know, collecting, uh, collecting data with metrics that matter in terms of, you know, first of all, what are our KPIs and what are, you know, measures of effectiveness, what are measures of performance, right? And being really dialed in as far as what that looks like. Because I know, you know, having an ROI on this is really important and we should be beholden to that and hold ourselves accountable in terms that we're investing all this time and money into these programs that we don't know whether or not they're working or not. I think one of the things that we fail to do is really get a good baseline understanding in terms of what are, you know, what are the, the intangible attributes we're trying to get after, you know, uh, confidence, composure, concentration, poise, goal orientation, motivation. These are just some of them, right? But what are the behaviors that we want versus, and how are we looking at, you know, um, inculcating and building on those behaviors that we want you know, versus looking at the behaviors that we don't want. And I think that's where we failed, frankly, you know, in the last 12 years is that we really were focused on the behaviors we don't want. And it'd be like the equivalent of taking a, a basic combat training soldier, you know, could you imagine a drill sergeant going up to that soldier and saying, hey, make sure that you aim to not miss the target. But from, from a research standpoint, that's what we were doing. And that's not to take away from the great things like the Army um, Army Applications Laboratory, rare um, ARL that are doing out there as well, too. It's just, what were we looking at, right? And then I think right now, under, getting just a baseline understanding of where we're at with these programs right now in terms of just a utilization standpoint, um, Thor 3 on the SOCOM side has this challenge as well, too, as far as measuring data that really matters. It shows whether or not the return on the investment is. So my question is, are we asking SOCOM and, and, and USASOC and Thor 3 about what their challenges are in terms of measurement? And how do those, how is their measuring these populations compared to the populations that are not trained, assessed, and selected for their specific types of mission units in the general population and the conventional forces, right? But I think it's really, really important we get a baseline understanding. It really starts with utilization. Uh, first and foremost, too, in terms of what what is the demand signal, right, and then how it's being used. So if we have a menu of mental skills that we know that are evidence-based and designed to enhance performance for tactical athletes on the individual and organizational level, which one of those are the most important, right, you know, for, this, for the different units, right? And then how are we dialing those in and, and then how are we measuring it, right? Um, you know, and, and knowing that self-reported surveys are extremely limited, and this is hard stuff, guys. You know, there's people with uh, a lot of degrees, with a lot of experience that struggle with this, this. And I'll be honest with you, there's not enough uh, major Wally Stodens and not enough out major Allison Bragers, research psychologists out there. There's about 30 of them. And so I think one of the ways that we can do is export this research. You know, we're leveraging a lot of our research and development base within our defense innovation uh, network, right? You know, and I work with Texas A&E University, who has a lot of capability to help the Army with. And so what I would like to see you know, as a, you know, for somebody who's seen this from the strategic down to the tactical level is to let's export our research capability out to the people who do it better than we do. And if we could do that, maybe then we can find a partnership and collaboration that's really going to help us understand ourselves and then change behaviors the right way. And Andy, I think you hit on a good point again. It's uh, go out and find human performance analysts who actually can come in and figure out, okay, let me ask the right questions, find out what the problem is or what you're hoping to achieve. Then I can find the right biofeedback equipment for you or other uh, areas of measurement. And then what is our endpoint? What are we trying to do? 
and how are we going to collect that data and who's going to analyze it so it's a again it's a strategy and once you have that in place and you've got people who that's all they do they can figure that out for you Absolutely. Thank you both. That's some really great insight as to how we're just going to continue to build on H2F's success with those pilot programs and just what it can really bring to our soldiers. Um, I will ask, we had a question from Facebook. Um, these programs are incredible, but we're a total army. We're not just their active force. So how are we going to be able to utilize these H2F and mental readiness training and skills within the National Guard and our reserve units? Because they may not have access to these interdisciplinary teams um, or even these performance readiness centers that y'all have discussed um, so far. And Sarah, I'll start with that one there as, as we look at working with Compo2. And if you think about how we're fielding H2F now uh, with the embedded brigades right now inside of Forcecom, it's, we're only looking at through the life cycle right now plan is 110 brigades, which is really about 50% of even the active component. And so, as I mentioned up front, it, it's not just the embedded and the ability to, to interact physically with our performance specialists, it's access to our performance specialists. And what we've learned over COVID, that may not be a physical location, but how do we enable um, our Army Reserve, Army National Guard, and those, and the other half of the active component that may not be on a military installation to get access via the teletype medicine that we have been doing via COVID and really the interaction with those specialists to build the programs and the training plans uh, for our soldiers regardless of where they happen to be located. And I know uh, both the Army Reserve and the Army Guard, many states have pilots right now as we, we start to figure out how do we do that based on technology that Karen talked about, app-based technology, wearable technology, and then the telemedicine as we continue to go. As we, as we continue to uh, mature H2F. And as we talked about the strategy aspect that uh, Karen mentioned, is with the fielding of the 28 brigades, this FY that'll be done by the end of, uh, end of September, as those brigades will help us develop that strategy as we begin interacting on a daily basis with our soldiers and look not only for the metrics, but the outcomes. Because what we did is what Andy said, is we looked at what Thor 3 has done uh, and the success Thor 3 has had over the last 10 years in the soft community. And we're trying to expand that now from a, an elite population in the soft community, now to the general army at mass. And so what worked in soft may not work for the conventional army at mass. And so we are export, exporting it to the conventional army, looking at the metrics and the utilization when I can only get three to five touch points every uh, two weeks, vice what we have in the Thor 3 in a soft community with a smaller population. And now look at the outcomes we're trying to achieve. It may not be to get every soldier to that 95th to 100th percentile of performance, but it may be some of those soldiers that we're trying to get to the 50 50th percentile or above, as well as the elite performers. So we're looking at it in a different scale and scope. And this next year, as we field these 28 brigades and we get out there working with those initial units, we'll be able to finalize that strategy and then figure out how to bring in the technology and, and that component of it as we look at uh, a million man army. Yeah, and I, I agree with that, sir. You know, I think that, you know, one of the hard lessons we've learned due to COVID is, you know, how do we, um, how do we leverage technology to be able to then do any type of training education remotely when we may not have been used to that? Baseball was a great example of that. I was with the Rockies last year, um, you know, was supposed to go out to spring training, um, but then all of a sudden we shut it down, right? You know, and baseball is a culture that had not done any type of online training or at all, right? 
60-year-old who's been in the game their entire lives to now have to use back the iPad to figure out what the Zoom thing is, right? Just like a lot of us did. And I think the great news about the Army is that we were already accustomed to online training. I mean, let's be honest, it's not very good. Um, you know, I don't know anybody who, who looks forward to having mandatory online training. Didn't, and, you know, I could probably speak for a lot of soldiers that I work with. How do you quality online is not as a real thing, but it's plant the seed, you know, uh, in terms of understanding what mental skills training is, how they adopt it to themselves, and then how they influence others, right? And I think that that is a good way to scale the organization, right? You know, I think when you have webinars, when you have blogs, when you use social media, when you use podcasts, you use different ways and micro doses that allow people to be able to understand a concept, acquire it from themselves, apply it, then assess it in real time. That may be Walter, they're doing their one week in a month and their two weeks during the summertime. And maybe, and the great thing about the citizen soldier is, is that again, the performance context is beyond the military too, right? You know, because they're able to use those mental skills to make them a better father and husband when they're helping their kid with homework at night, when they're doing, you know, they have their real estate business and they're using these skills to then be a better real estate agent wherever they are in Montgomery, Texas, right? Um, I think whenever we create opportunities and micro doses, leveraging technology and all the channels that we have to then meet, again, what Eric Karen said, meet them where they're at remotely you know, in small doses that they can then tailor to themselves, the better we're going to be. Because I think that's not only going to help reach them, it's going to help sustain them because that is the key thing here too. Because you can introduce mental skills training, the consulting model is limited, right? The growth doesn't happen when I have an intervention with the player on the field. It doesn't happen when I'm at the range with a green beret, right? The true growth, what happens is what the end user and unit does when I as a consultant am not there. That That's the key. And so whenever we can create opportunities to sustain this training using technology, the better off we're going to be to develop these tactical athletes. Yeah, Andy, you're, you're exactly right. And H2F, you know, it's a cultural change. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to enable uh, through education as well as access, a cultural change that a soldier takes ownership. In. And so part of this is what you mentioned is, Growth didn't occur, the touch point you had, the growth occurred when they started applying what you taught them. And so whether yes, that's either um, on duty or off duty, and that's the intent of this cultural change, because I can tell a soldier, I'll use nutrition because it's easy. You should only take in, you know, 2,500 calories to meet your goals. But if they don't embrace it and take ownership in their own nutrition, they're never going to change what their goal is. And so that's what the cultural change in H2F is. It's about that education and taking ownership in your own health, not just having it uh, being done to you or for you. And sir, psychologically, that autonomy is so important. So basically, H2F is giving them the ability to make their own case study, their individual case study, and look at it, and then be a part of implementing and making those changes. And that's going to go a long way. They're not being told, this is exactly what you have to do. They're going to have a two-way conversation on these different aspects of their health. Yeah, and I think that shoving it down people's throats has proven to not be really effective either, right? You know, and I, I'll never forget when um, I had three classes in a row uh, of a of certain course of NCOs. Basically, point blank that they thought the resilience was a four-letter word because they were tired of having to shove down their throats. And, and that didn't mean that they didn't value, they didn't think it was important, but the way that it was packaged and delivered to them was really ineffective, right? And, and I, I've seen this with different populations 
not only in the military, but, you know, in sports and also in business, is that when you create an opportunity to where, you know, it becomes their idea, the likelihood of psychological ownership happening is a lot higher than if you force it from the top down. So I think a top down and bottom up approach is, uh, is key to the success of this program. Well, I also think that if you're teaching performance correctly, then resilience is a secondary or a second order effect to that. And when I'm coaching an athlete, I never say, okay, today we're going to talk about resilience. It's just if I'm teaching those performance skills, they're going to become resilient. These are all really great points about how we can um, put some responsibility back on our, our soldiers who are um, in kind of a more structured environment where they're used to being told how they're going to do things, told how they're going to train. Um, and with the mental resiliency, there's kind of a stigma that Andy actually touched on in the very beginning about just why mental resiliency and readiness is so important. So how do our leaders um, and those having those initial conversations and interactions with our new soldiers at BCT encourage or help erase or um, diminish that stigma attached to mental readiness and really getting the soldier involved in their training and taking on some responsibility for it when they're so used to hearing what they're gonna learn and hearing their skills that they need to bring on? Well, from, from my standpoint, since uh, CIMT owns initial entry training, one of the things that we, we kind of did during COVID was we, we, we learned from professional sports as well as from, from colleges as well, is if you think about what we're doing with our soldiers and we're bringing them into a new culture, just like if you recruit any sport, so I'll use football as an analogy because that's what I played, you didn't show up day one at college and start playing this, the sport. You came into a, a training camp that taught you the, the culture of the unit or the organization you were joining, taught you the rules, uh, taught you how to interact. You got to build the team with your new players. And so that's what we're doing now as we look at initial entry training, Sarah, to get after your point, is we're teaching them what it is to be part of the Army, to be part of this new culture, to meet your teammates, build trust with your non-commissioned officers, and remove the stigma of asking for help. Um, as they come into our team because it is significantly different. And so we're trying to get after some of those behaviors uh, through a more a deliberate process of onboarding into the Army uh, to remove those cultural barriers, to remove those stigmas, as well as provide them the access as well as the capability to get support if they do find challenges as they come in on, into the Army. No, it's, it's a great point, sir. You know, I mean, I, I had the honor of being a basic training commander during one of my uh, when, I, when I was a young officer, you know, at, at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And uh, I, I think, you know, prior to that, I mean, I always like to ask the questions, where were you when you got your Army Values card, right? You know, we had formation. And if you remember, you remember this, sir, you know, hey, you got your, remember you got your dog tag with the values on it, a leadership acronym, and you got your card on it with the word ethos on the back. And it said, memorize this, you know, and then, you know, next, we're going to have, we're going to check on this, right? So, you, so you, you know, you put it on your, you know, you comply, right? You know, but there's a difference between, you know, compliance and commitment, right? And so flash forward a couple of years later as a basic training commander where we were weaving the Army values into everything that we did. Our drill sergeants are brilliant at this, right? And, you know, it's just like water over a rock. Everything we're doing, we're talking about the Army values. And it comes action in the behavior, right? So now I go from being compliant to the Army values. Now it's culturally we're committed to it because I've, I've had quality repetition in terms of manifesting uh, these army values into my behaviors, right? So now just not part of something I do, it's part of who I am, right? Yeah. 
I think mental skills training is the same thing, right? If they understand that it's really important, which in, in the research supports that, you know, and we know that, you know, uh, combat is a, a mental person's game, right? Because we've experienced, you know, and, and I, I certainly experienced on multiple levels, sir, I know you did too, is that, you know, being a leader at different levels, that it was impossible to train for every scenario that we were going to experience, right? As an artilleryman, how many in lieu of missions do you have to have? I wasn't I was not prepared to be a, a, a combat advisor. I was sent to Fort Riley for three months, thrown together with 12 different people that I met. They were complete strangers prior to that, and then sent to Mosul, Iraq for 15 months, right? Good luck. Have fun with that, right? So what did I fall back on? I felt just like you did, sir. I fell back on the training that I received when I was a football player at Army with the Center for Enhanced Performance. And I think that it highlights because if I have these, these uh, if I have mental toughness, if I have the ability to be gritty and resilient, that allows me to be adaptable to the situation, makes me a better decision maker. It makes me have better situational awareness, right? And so, but then that didn't start, you know, there when I was in Mosul, Iraq as a combat advisor. That started at Mikey Stadium, right? And then continued throughout my Army career. And I think what's great now is that we have the opportunity to, to, to really start to load that rucksack up of the tools and the skills that can make people better, whatever the mission they're doing overseas. But I think mean, let's talk about it. It's, it's going to make them a better human being when they leave the army, which I've been experiencing now. It's going to help you transition better. It's going to help you make, make you a better husband, father, you know. And let's face it. I mean, you know, there are skills that you learn in the army that aren't transferable to the outside world for the rest of your life, right? But the mental skills that you're going to receive when you're in the army, the values that you're going to be a part of, the leadership things that are intangible, those are the things that are going to carry with you the rest of your life to be a soldier for life. And Andy. Going back to what you talked about, about the uh, Army ethos and autonomy, uh, one thing that I like to do is have the soldiers come up with their own ethos. So take your own values, make a little part of your values and carry that with you. And that's something too that they can pull out and look at. Um, and I also think, like what you said, to transfer these skills into other areas, it takes repetition. And that's why it's so important back to the connection and the fact that you're going to have these teams in brigades building relationships with the soldiers and they're going to be out there all the time reinforcing this in different training activities they're doing rather than a one and done and then it becomes rote you've got to keep practicing it so it's just like as a coach if i was teaching someone how to triple jump and i came in and spent two hours with them and then they never saw me again chances are they're not going to retain all that information but if i'm out there every day with them then it becomes rope. Absolutely, Karen and Andy. I mean, these are great points, and they all just speak to the Army's focus right now of really making some great cultural changes just to make us better people in order to make us more um, capable individuals to defend the nation, because that's why everyone decided to join the Army most of the time anyway. Um, so. I, it kind of that idea kind of plays into the this is my squad aspect of um, the army and things like that. So with these interdisciplinary teams, we may not have that interaction on a daily basis with individuals. So how would you encourage um, like leaders of those soldiers to build those this is my squad, those tight cultural um, connections that really build an individual to their full capacity? How how do we how do soldiers interact with those that interdisciplinary team on a regular basis to to be the best they can be? I think it's coaching. Um, you know, when I look back on my career, I think you know 
we the art and science coaching is something that I think that we can help our leaders with too. And, and interestingly enough, as you know, sir, the Army is piloting, importing executive coaching into, you know, I think our mid-level leaders, if I'm if I'm correct, right. So what is that? You know, I'm asking really good questions, right? You know, as part of that, you know, I, I'm 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 shutting up and I'm listening. I'm seeking to understand versus res, you know hearing to respond. That that's first and foremost too, because I think if you really take the time to listen to what you're soldiers have to, you ask open-ended questions and then you shut up and listen to your soldiers and you take the time to hear what they actually have to say that's going to increase the likelihood that you're going to you're going to meet them where they're at and i also think that we're we we uh we put a you know we have this kind of drive-through uh, mindset like you know hey that that you know or that i have to be something very deliberate and intentional in order to be able to get the effects i want behavior with our soldiers when the reality is is that our little micro interventions we have and by intervention i mean just a conversation right conversations that we have, the 30-second conversation I have with a player, with a soldier, with a, a business leader, that may make the difference in the world for that person's day. You know, if nothing else that lets them know that you, you they're, they're validated, they are heard, that you understand them. You know, even if you're not providing them with anything, you know, but empathy um, is incredibly important, you know. So how do we get comfortable as leaders doing something by what we think is doing nothing, you know, uh, by being present? by engaging them fully, by asking them, instead of just, hey, how are you doing? How many times do we ask throughout our day, how are you doing? But how many times do we actually mean it and, and take the time to allow them to, to tell you how they're doing, right? And, and I think that's what Tim's is trying to do is to build those really unique connections. And it also creates psychological safety in a way that soldiers are willing to talk to you about not only what's working for them from a cognitive and emotional side, how that's affecting their behaviors on and off duty, but then it helps you really understand what their baseline is and what the obstacles are, right? Because really good coaches understand where their soldiers are at and they understand how to remove those barriers mentally and emotionally, right? Because that's oftentimes what we do, you know? And it, it's, it isn't this monumental, I'm gonna sit you down for an hour and, and click a PowerPoint and then all of a sudden you're more resilient. It's those little micro interventions on a daily basis that make the biggest difference when it comes to um, understanding our soldiers and then helping them uh, be at their best when it matters the most. I also, I think too, for the leaders, there's been a big shift lately in performance and what we've seen and how important recovery is. And I think that we need to start with recovery first. So I watched a webinar uh, my company put on last week and Rob Falk, who's the director of human performance at University of Southern California, said sleep is the new weapon of performance. And so if we start talking about recovery and how important that is, it's doing two things. It's showing the soldier that one, I care about you. I'm invested in you. It's not all about what you can do. And we're also uh, promoting a different culture that we need to start promoting because recovery is so important. Yeah, I think the last piece on the organizational level too is that how am I getting creative in terms of assessing our performance from a cognitive and emotional side into our training, right? When was the last time you had an AAR where we were talking about mental skills and how they look like in action, right? It doesn't happen very often, but those are the types of opportunities that we could do. When I'm at the NTC, you know, and I and I just did a you know a a collective task, you know, as a platoon, and I'm you know, and I'm an OCT, and I'm working that into. Imagine a cognitive enhancement specialist that they're not there, and we're talking about how we use imagery to be able to see ourselves executing fluently how did we use what was our level of motivation on a scale of one to five 
you know, how are we situationally aware? What was our attention? Was it where it needed to be when it needed to be there or was it not, right? Were we truly present and fully engaged? And, and then, you know, how did that help our decision making in the process? When we can have those opportunities to build mental skills training into what we already do, um, then it becomes part of who we are, both individually and collectively. Absolutely. Absolutely, and I I can't thank you both enough for sharing these great insights into mental performance and just how important they are for our soldier lethality. Unfortunately, we're starting to come to the end of our event. Um, so I just wanna thank um, you, sir. joining us today they can start implementing into their teams to make everyone just as successful as Karen and Andy are seeing with the teams that they work with. Karen, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap things up? I'm just really excited about the H2F program and the experiential approach it's taking in the smaller unit setting. I think that the investment in establishing relationships with the soldiers and individual team members and constant reinforcement of skills and habits being taught will have substantial long-term effects on the soldier's performance and health. And it's also an investment in the soldier's present and future well-being. So super excited about the program. Thank you again, Karen, for being with us today. Um, Andy, is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, I mean, guys, this is a chance, our chance to do it right. And I think we've learned a lot over the years. And I think one of the great things about my, my service in the Army is being a real-time learning organization, whereas before we were we were learning the previous, fighting the previous fight. And what you've seen is that cultural, that's a, a paradigm shift that's happened where we're learning and synthesizing information in real time, right? And we're not just insular and just looking at ourselves. We're looking at other high-performing organizations that are out there and we're implementing those best practices in real time you know and i i think that's an incredible thing and i think you know when we take about what we learned from implementing csf and we really scrub that and we have you know and then you know 7-22 is an artifact of that too what we're doing you know is to be really deliberate and intentional and focusing on quality versus quality to me that's a special operations forces truth that is really is part of who i am is that quality is more important than quantity Let's take our time to measure twice, cut once, do it right, be deliberate and intentional in terms of not only how we, we implement, but how we assess this program. And then let's just not just keep it to ourselves, right? Let's look beyond the Army about who other people who are doing this, who are like for what I'm doing in Major League Baseball and professional sports, who a lot of people who've been in the Army, who understand and get it and want to help. We are, we are not you know, a silo in and of ourselves. And what I would like is us to continue to be able to reach out leverage you know our our base that we have here as a country to help make our army better and if we get it right this time i think our society is going to benefit not just the army you know and so i'm thinking bigger than that too and that's how important this is i'm just excited to be a part of it i'm a resource i would love anybody who's watching this please reach out to me i am never too busy uh, to do that i'm still a servant leader uh, i'm still a soldier at heart uh, i would love to help you wherever wherever you're at if you're an individual soldier if you're a spouse if you're a business leader, if you're someone who's out there who wants to figure this out, reach out to me and, and you know, and, and I, we'll connect you with the people who can. I know Karen feels the same way. And I just wish you guys the best of luck and to continue to uh, train your brain and up your game. Thanks. We'll see you in the arena.
Thank you so much, Andy. I really appreciate that and your dedication to uh, continuing to build some, some mentally tough and ready individuals, um, not just in our Army, but the community as a whole. Uh, General Hibbert, is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with today? Yeah, I just want to capitalize on one thing that Andy and Karen both said there is most of the discussion you guys have had today have been about a cultural change, and we've talked about this being a cultural change for our, for our Army. And one thing I've learned as we've, as we've been implementing the ACFT is changing culture in an organization as large, as large as the Army does take time. And Andy, you mentioned it there when you talked about the return on investment, taking it one piece at a time uh, of the quality versus the quantity. And I think this will be, this will be a, a long-term cultural change as we get buy-in from every soldier in order to not only improve our force, but also improve our country as our soldiers transition to their civilian job. So thank you very much for, for joining us today. And thank you again, Karen and Andy, for your, sharing your valuable insights with us. Uh, there are resources available uh, to help you understand and embrace the H2F system that we talked about today. Please take advantage of them. With FM 722 Holistic Health and Fitness, and then the two associated technical publications uh, this past uh, October in 2020. Um, these new manuals serve as doctrine for H2F, and as H2F matures, as we continue to implement it across the Army, the doctrine will be published uh, as we continue to update it based on our lessons learned. So, again, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Uh, this was a great discussion on H2F. Um, H2F is an innovative program that will greatly benefit every individual who joins this Army. Um, I want to thank everyone who tuned in today. And as we all know, the Army has been really focused on putting people at only as successful as each individual who wears this uniform and to provide them with the programs and resources like the ones discussed here today to find and harness their full capabilities is the best we can do for them. Please join us on June 17th at 11 a.m. for the next LPD titled Diversity, Inclusion, History and Memory, America and its Army. And remember, victory starts here.